Well, let's turn in our copies of God's Word to Paul's epistle to the Romans, chapter 1 and verse 18. Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 32. Let's give careful attention now to the reading of God's holy word. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lusts of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason God gave them up to vile passions, for even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another, men with men committing what is shameful, and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error, which was due. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who knowing the righteous judgment of God that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. May the Lord bless the reading of His Word to us this morning. Amen. Seeking the Lord this morning for His blessing and help, let's turn back to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. And focusing our attention 
upon verse 21. Speaking here of those who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. We're told, because although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were thankful. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were thankful. And you can see the consequences in the second half of verse 21. But they became futile in their thoughts and their foolish hearts were darkened. But why did they become foolish and futile in their thoughts and in their hearts? What was it that paved the way for the utter insanity of their lifestyle, of their corrupted beliefs and all of these things, their idolatry, what paved the way, what created the vacuum into which all of these other horrific things in Romans chapter 1 speedily filled? What created that vacuum? Well, it was because although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were thankful. Now last time, we considered the men or human beings throughout the world who suppress, who hold down the truth in unrighteousness. They have the truth. They have the truth of God's existence They see His existence. They see evidence for it in the created world around them, in their conscience within them. They see evidence for His eternal power which produced all of these things. They see evidence for His Godhead. Now, it's important to understand that that word Godhead in Greek and historically in English is not a reference to the Trinity. We say in our confessional documents that there are three persons in the Godhead, and for some reason, uh, I guess it's easy to kind of think about, but people have begun to think, well, then the Godhead is the three persons. So the Godhead is all three persons right there in a row, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That is not the case. The word here is theates. It means divine nature. It's referring to the one divine nature of God. It has no specific reference to the three persons of the Trinity. Paul is not saying that people by nature through the created world and through their conscience know Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the three persons of the Godhead. When we say in our confessional documents that there are three persons in the Godhead, we're simply saying there are three persons in the one divine nature. Three persons in the divine nature. Three persons, one God. Three persons, one Godhead. And in Colossians, it says that Christ, uh, in whom the fullness of the Godhead dwelt bodily. Well, what we're not saying there is that all three persons of the Trinity became incarnate. We're saying that the fullness of the divine being, fully and equally possessed by the second person of the Trinity, became incarnate. And the fullness of the divine person of the Son dwelt bodily. 
We need to understand that. We need to be careful here. The word Godhead is a good translation, and it's a great word for the catechism question on the Trinity. It's just we need to do a better job of knowing what the word means. It means divine nature, or you might say Godhood. Godhood or deity. So by nature, people know and see evidence for God's existence, His power, His deity, And so, verse 20 tells us that they are without excuse. They're without excuse for their negligence to respond appropriately to the God who made them. To the God that they were created to love with all of their heart, all of their soul, all of their mind, all of their strength. The God that they were called to love by loving His image bearers, loving their neighbor, even their enemy, as themselves. They're without excuse for their ungodliness, which leads to their unrighteousness. Even if they've never received a Bible, even if they've never heard the Gospel, even if they've never heard that old, old story of the Savior come from glory, even if they've never heard that, they're still sinning against the light that they have, the light of creation and the light of conscience. And Paul says that from the creation of the world... This was understood to the point where they either were going to receive it and respond or suppress it in unrighteousness and man by nature in his depravity has suppressed the truth in unrighteousness. They knew God. He's an unknown God in many respects. They don't know His Trinitarian uh, personalities, but they do understand His existence. They knew Him. They didn't know Him personally. They didn't know Him savingly, but they knew that He exists. They knew certain things about Him that they could draw from the created world around them and their conscience that He's righteous and holy, that He's going to judge the world, that sin deserves death, that He's wise and creative and powerful and good and generous. They knew Him. But they did not glorify Him as God. They did not glorify Him as God. We believe that man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. And in glorifying God, we do enjoy Him forever, but first and foremost, fundamentally, our calling as human beings, and it's still the calling of every human being on the face of this earth, whether their depravity and sin has kept them from being able to do it is a different question, but their duty is to glorify God. That's their calling. That's what all of us ought to be doing in response to the goodness and the power and might and holiness of God that we see around us. We ought to be glorifying Him. We ought to be ascribing glory to Him. We ought to see His mighty works and say, wow, a a powerful Creator has done this. We ought to respond in our conscience when we sense the difference between right and wrong, and that that is grounded in the God who created our conscience, we ought to ascribe to Him righteousness and holiness. We ought to glorify Him as God. God expects this not merely of His covenant people, but He expects this of every human being, even pagan nations. You think of the the pagan nation of Babylon, which was overrun with ignorance and darkness and idolatry. And yet in the book of Daniel, 
God judges Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel 4 verse 30, when he looks at all that God has given him in the kingdom of Babylon, all of God's goodness, all of God's mighty works providentially to bring Nebuchadnezzar to the throne of this worldwide empire, he says, is not this great Babylon that I have built for a royal dwelling for my mighty power and for the honor of my majesty? You say, well, he's, he's, an, he's a pagan. What better does he know? Ah, but you see, of course, he did interact with Daniel. But the point is, God holds him accountable. While the word was still in the king's mouth, a voice fell from heaven, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you. It's also true of Belshazzar, the man whom we, we, we think is Nebuchadnezzar's grandson, most likely. Daniel chapter 5, Daniel confronts him for not glorifying God. Daniel 5, verse 18, Daniel confronts Belshazzar for not glorifying God. O King, the Most High God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father a kingdom and majesty, glory and honor. And because of the majesty that he gave him, all peoples, nations and languages trembled and feared before him. Whomever he wished, he executed. Whomever he wished, he kept alive. Whomever he wished, he set up. And whomever he wished, he put down. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened in pride, he was deposed from his kingly throne. God caused him to behave like a beast of the field. He literally gave him over to utter beastly insanity for a period of time deposed him from his kingly throne, and they took his glory from him. Then he was driven out from the sons of men. His heart was made like the beasts, and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. They fed him with grass like oxen, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, till he knew that the Most High God rules in the kingdoms of men and appoints over it whomever he chooses. But you, his son, probably grandson, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, although you knew all this. And you have lifted yourself up against the Lord of heaven. They have brought the vessels of His house before you. He brought out the temple vessels from His treasury to profane in a drunken dinner party. And you and your lords, your wives and your concubines have drunk wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold, bronze and iron, wood and stone, which do not see or hear or know. And the God who holds your breath in His hand and owns all your ways, you have not glorified. And He's not alone. That's mankind's response by nature to to the existence, to the creative power, to the providential dealings of God. He is the one who holds your breath in His hand, but He is the one you have not glorified. They knew God. They did not glorify Him as God. What does it mean for an unconverted, unchurched pagan to glorify God, to worship God, to praise Him and ascribe glory to Him for what is observable in creation and conscience? What does that look like? This is a situation that for us seems purely hypothetical 
and throughout much of the world, perhaps it is. But what does it mean? What are they failing to do, these unchurched pagans, in not glorifying Him as God? Well, we said last time that they're failing to engage in the natural acts of creaturely worship. By nature, God made us, apart from the Gospel, apart from the Bible, we have a duty, we have a duty to worship God. The first table of the law in principle, the work of that law is written on the human heart. Romans chapter 2, verse 14, for when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things in the law, that includes the first half of the Ten Commandments, the first table, glorifying God. Honoring Him. Loving Him. When Gentiles who don't have that written law by nature do the things in the written law, these, although not having the law, are a law to themselves. Now, being a law unto yourself is a bad thing, but here it's not a bad thing. It's called the influence of the conscience upon even the unchurched pagan Gentile. They have some sense of right and wrong and some sense though it's corrupted by sin, some sense of all aspects of God's law, morally speaking. Duty toward God, duty toward man. They have some sense of that. And that's why they will be judged according to that conscientious sense of right and wrong. Verse 15, "...who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness..." and between themselves, their thoughts accusing or else excusing them. So our duty toward God is written on the human conscience, even in its depraved form. It's corrupted, but the general principles are there. Now you say, well, how can you, how can you talk about unchurched pagans outside of the covenant of grace, for whom Christ is not presently mediating, how can you speak of them worshiping God? Aren't all of their best works as filthy rags? Isn't it an abomination? And and isn't it a sin for them to presume to worship God apart from Jesus Christ? To worship God, to pray to God in their sinful condition. Of course, their righteousness is as filthy rags. Their best works are as filthy rags. And yes, it is a sin to worship or pray to God apart from Jesus Christ. That involves sin. However, look with me at Proverbs 21, verse 4. Proverbs 21, verse 4. Proverbs 21, verse 4. A haughty look a proud heart, and the plowing of the wicked are sin. The plowing of the wicked. So the wicked is plowing his field, diligently laboring, seeking to produce a crop and feed his family. And and there's nothing sinful in and of itself with plowing, with working. There are many things externally, ethically, that unconverted people do, that in themselves are morally upright and acceptable. That wicked person plows his field, he works hard, he's not dishonest, he sells it at the marketplace and buys food, or he uses it as food to make bread for his family. 
His plowing is not sinful in itself, and yet, because he is not a believer, because he's not right with God, all of his works are dead works. Because he is in an unconverted state where he is proud in himself and has not humbled himself and does not glorify God and give thanks to God, because he is a sinner by nature, such that even in the midst of his plowing, a laudable and acceptable action, even in the midst of his plowing, there's a haughty look, there's a proud heart. Because he has sin that has infected his soul, that corrupts and pollutes every single thing that he does. And so even his plowing is sin. However, it would be more sinful if he didn't plow. If he was just sitting by um, on the couch watching television, lazily allowing his family to starve or something like that, it would be worse. So yes, his plowing is sin because of the sin of his nature. But it would be an even greater sin if he were proud and haughty and sinful sitting on his couch not feeding his family. And it's the same way with our duty of creaturely worship. Yes, it's true that an unconverted person crying out to the God of creation apart from Christ is unacceptable in the sight of God. Yes, that involves sin. But it would be more sinful if he said, look at all this that I have done and refused to worship God in any sense, refused to glorify Him, took the credit for himself, became an atheist or something like that. So there are degrees of sin. And so there is a duty of these natural acts of creaturely worship. Paul says the unchurched pagan is guilty of not doing certain things that would glorify God. If he did them, there would still be sinfulness in it, but it wouldn't be as bad. Just like the hardworking farmer who is unconverted, his hell will not be as hot as the unconverted, wicked, lazy bum that sits on the couch. Well, what are these creaturely acts of worship? First, recognition. The God who created us demands to be recognized by His creatures. And in Psalm 9, which we've been singing and we'll continue to sing as we come to the conclusion of the service, Psalm 9, verse 17, The wicked shall be turned into hell and all the nations that forget God. All the nations that forget God. Unchurched, pagan nations, but they're not responding to the light of God's presence and attributes in the creation. They have forgotten God. God demands that He not be forgotten, that He be recognized even by all the nations of the world. Psalm 10, verse 4, The wicked in his proud countenance does not seek God. God is in none of his thoughts. Or else, elsewhere translated, all his thoughts are, there is no God. So the unchurched pagan has a duty to recognize God, to see God in the creation, to ascribe glory to Him, not to forget God, not to put God out of his thoughts, but to have some sense of God. Acts 17, verse 23. 
says that we live and move and have our being in God. He's not far from any one of us. So the fact that the unchurched pagan doesn't recognize this is sin. The unknown God, out of sight, out of mind. So he must be recognized. Secondly, he must be feared and reverence. The creature owes fear and reverence to God as Creator. Even the demons, even the demons, there is one God, James says, yes, the demons know that and they tremble. The unchurched pagan ought to tremble. And to be quite honest, many of them have throughout history. This is one of the big differences between the objects of evangelism in Paul's day in the first century and the objects of evangelism that we encounter in this gospel-hardened Western culture. Typically, the unchurched pagan in Paul's day when he brought them the gospel had some sense of guilt. Their religion had some acknowledgement that God needs to be appeased. Some acknowledgement that there is a God and there is judgment and justice and God is wrathful against sin and they need this problem of guilt taken care of and so on. People in our culture think God owes them something and it's not judgment. We're entitled. We're self-righteous. We are the generation who is blameless in its own eyes. But in any event, by nature, even apart from the Bible, mankind has a duty to fear and reverence God. Our conscience accuses us. Therefore, we ought to tread lightly when we think about a deity, when we think about whoever created this world, this God. We must be fearful and trembling. Even Adam and Eve were trembling, fearful, hiding in the trees of the garden. We have not even attained to that. We have not recognized God, and to the extent that we have, we have not feared and trembled before Him. Think of Nineveh. All they had was, for what, from what we can tell, a pretty bad evangelistic sermon from Jonah. And uh, they repented in sackcloth and ashes. It says they believed God. They believed God and they responded in penitent faith, humbling themselves. The king of Nineveh called everyone, even the animals, to fast and humble themselves before the God who made them because of their sin, because of their conscience testifying to His justice, His righteousness, His wrath, that those who do these things deserve death. They responded with fear and reverence toward God. Who would not fear you? Revelation 15.4 So there's a natural act of creaturely worship just in fearing and reverencing God. Though there may be much idolatry and corruption, my friends, we look at our own day. People, many people don't recognize God. The ones who do, who sing along at the seventh inning stretch, God bless America, make a mockery of the living God. He's a consuming fire. They turn him into a weak and inept, uh, flattering grandfather in the sky. We have a duty to fear and reverence him. We have a duty to call upon his name in prayer. Jeremiah 10, verse 25. Pour out your fury on the Gentiles who do not know you. 
So they knew God. They suppress it in unrighteousness. And certainly they don't know Him personally, savingly, through God's covenant of grace revealed in the Scriptures. They don't know Him. They're unchurched pagans. And on the families, pour out your fury, on the families who do not call on your name. These are people who don't know God through special revelation. And yet, Jeremiah says, pour out your fury on these unchurched pagan Gentile nations, on these families who do not call upon your name. They don't rely upon you. They don't depend upon you. They don't pray. Yes, their prayer apart from Christ would be as filthy rags, but it's even filthier that they don't even pray at all. They trust in themselves. They've suppressed even the truth and light of natural revelation. They are the fool who says in his heart, there is no God. And out of that atheistic heart mentality, all kinds of abominable and corrupt deeds flow. Psalm 79, verse 6. Pour out your wrath on the nations who do not know you and on the kingdoms that do not call upon your name. So every family has a duty to worship God and pray to God. Every family, whether you have a Bible or not, the unchurched pagan, but also also every kingdom. The kingdoms that reject and ignore any recognition of God, any fear and trembling before God, any sense of prayerful dependence upon God, which many pagan nations have had to, to one extent or another, something of this. Again, they're still lost and dead in sin. But you can see the increased guilt of self-reliance in not even calling upon the name of God. The families, the kingdom. Psalm 147 verse 9 says, even the ravens call upon God for their food. We as human beings, the pinnacle of God's creation on earth, made in the image of God, cannot even attain to the piety of the ravens. As I said, even the demons... Even the demons. Matthew 8.31, Jesus confronts the demoniac of the Gadarenes and Legion, the demon, representing the demons inside of this man, asks Jesus not to be sent to the bottomless pit, the abyss, but rather to be sent into the pigs. He, he trembles. He's a, he fears and reverences God in the person of Jesus Christ. He even makes a request of Jesus and Jesus grants it. We have no assurance that our prayers will be heard or answered apart from Christ, but there are examples. Here's an example of a demon making a request and that request is granted. Ahab, an unconverted king, fasted and prayed and God answered his prayer. God gave him what he asked for. God doesn't promise to do that for creatures outside of Christ and yet... It's a sin if we don't call upon the name of God. Prayerlessness is a sin for anyone and everyone, every individual, family, or kingdom in this world with or without a copy of the Bible. Fourthly, by nature, we ought to worship God through obedience. Romans 1 has told us that by nature... We know something of the difference between right and wrong and that those who practice things that are sinful deserve to be judged by Almighty God. 
Romans 2.14 says that the unchurched pagan will be judged and evaluated by God on judgment day according to the light of their conscience accusing them of sin. That tells us that the sense of right and wrong, however corrupted, however generic that the unchurched pagan has, he or she has a duty to obey it and will be held accountable for violating it. And so people, for instance, who murder their babies and in their conscience they have a sense, as they often admit at the abortion clinic, they have a sense. They know this is wrong. You meet people that are outside of Christ and uh, in some sense they have very little, if any, real exposure to special revelation here in our own country. And they feel guilty for sexual immorality. They feel guilty for abortion. They feel guilty for losing their temper and shouting at the umpire. They feel guilty for these things. And so, they did not glorify Him as God means they didn't recognize God. They didn't fear Him. They didn't rely upon Him and call upon Him in times of need. And they did not obey the conscience that He put inside of them. Therefore, they did not worship Him and glorify Him through obedience. No excuse. No excuse. Nor were they thankful. Now, to glorify God is to praise Him for who He is. It's our response to who He is, the glorious God. But to thank God is our response to what He's done. Worship is the fruit of the lips. Giving thanks to His name. Giving thanks for all the marvelous things that He has done. The unchurched pagan has been the recipient of all of these external blessings that God showers upon the just and the unjust. He is kind to the thankful and the unthankful, and yet they refuse to thank Him. They're like the nine out of ten lepers that Jesus healed. And rather than returning to Him to give thanks, nine out of the ten simply went to the priest and went on their merry way to enjoy the gifts and benefits of their life as a creature, their creaturely enjoyments, and would not give thanks to the Creator and to the source of that healing, even the Lord Jesus Christ. That's who we are by nature. And to fail to glorify God is one form of ingratitude. How can we not glorify the One who has manifested His glory in giving us life and breath, holding our breath in His hand? Why is Belshazzar alive? Why are his lungs breathing? Because of God holding His breath in His hand, but He would not glorify Him, and that itself is an act of ingratitude. Ingratitude, in one sense, is more heinous than the failure to glorify It's more heinous in in a certain sense. It's more heinous in this sense that we thank people all the time. You're you're at a rest stop on a road trip and you're headed to the double doors. Somebody's a few steps in front of you and they open the door just a crack for you and you, you get the door and you say thank you. People in this world may not glorify and worship everyone or everything, but we thank people all the time for the most insignificant favors, for the most insignificant things. Somebody opens the door for you at the rest stop, thanks. 
We thank them for so many things that don't even register, that we don't even really think about. And sometimes we're not even all that thankful. We just say it. But the point is, we're willing to give thanks to, all, to, to people that have done us just a, a little ounce of goodness or blessing. But we're not going to thank God. We don't take time to glorify Him as a response of, ingra- of gratitude. We don't take time to recognize Him, to, to fear Him, to rely upon Him, to obey Him as a manifestation of our thankfulness. We don't thank Him. We don't love Him. We ignore Him. And ingratitude, my friends, is the root of all kinds of evil. You could say that it's the root cause of the fall of Adam and Eve into sin. That Satan persuaded them to no longer be content and grateful for what God had given them. No, you have to reach out for this forbidden fruit that God hasn't given to you. Their ingratitude, the seeds of ingratitude sown by the serpent, reaped a harvest of sin and of sin and misery throughout this age. It's a root of all kinds of evil. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. But most of the time, the love of money is produced by ingratitude for the money that we have. So ingratitude, in a sense, is the root of the root of all kinds of evil. It's the root even of the love of money. And not only does Paul emphasize ingratitude at the very foundation of this wickedness of Romans chapter 1, but in a very similar passage, 2 Timothy chapter 3, where he describes perilous seasons of ungodliness in the last days, he includes this same sin. For men will be lovers of themselves. Verse 2, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy. He goes on, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. This is the root of all kinds of of evil. They knew God. They did not glorify Him as God, nor were they thankful. Now, how do we apply this to ourselves? We can speak about the unchurched pagan, but how does this apply to us right here in the USA? The United States of America. Or we might say the ungrateful states of America. You see, if this passage condemns the unchurched pagan for not seeing the witness of God's eternal power and Godhead in the rain and the sunshine, how much more does this apply to our own nation and culture in this land where we have not only enjoyed a greater outpouring of temporal blessings than ever a pagan nation ever enjoyed, we've had more wealth, more enjoyments, more, more than many nations combined throughout history. Our lives are comfortable. They're prosperous. They're safe and secure. We have so many countless blessings just in creation that ought to testify to God. But more than that, we have His Word. We have it on every shelf, in every store, even the most wicked stores that you probably shouldn't be buying from. They're copies of the Bible. The Bible's available for, for free as an app on your phone. Whatever translation, there's, there's probably 57 different 
translations of the Bible out there. They're all over the place. You have access to the Word of God. We as a culture have access to it to read it, to hear it preached, to to gain insight through biblical resources and theological books. We have greater temporal and spiritual privileges and blessings than any nation that has ever existed on planet earth. God has shown Himself. He's not left Himself without a general and a special covenantal witness in our land. Our land was founded by godly, reformed, Calvinistic Christians who came to this land and signed the Mayflower Compact where they said, among other things, that they were establishing this political body, this society, this civilization for the glory of God and the advancement of Christian faith. How many people in the world can say that their civilization was founded for the glory of God? That their civilization covenanted to advance the Christian faith? How many continents can say that the first book ever printed on their continent was a psalm book? The Bay Psalm Book. First book ever printed in North America. My friends, don't allow the wicked to rewrite and revise history. The fact is, and this is not to our credit, by the way, uh, because all of these blessings actually hold us more accountable, but the point is, we from the very outset of this civilization were compacted and covenanted to be the Lord's and to glorify Him and to thank Him. Why do you think that there's a you know, Abraham Lincoln established the day of thanksgiving. It's because the original people who came to this country from across the pond on the Mayflower trusted in God and when God preserved them through many difficult days and trials on their first winter here in in America, they devoted a day of thanksgiving. And they did that repeatedly. It wasn't just a one-time thing. They had days of humiliation and fasting and prayer and worship when, when there were disasters and earthquakes and plagues and when God did things for them, when He wrought mighty works to preserve them and to bless them, they had days of thanksgiving. Not as a token day for turkey and football, but they had a day of thanksgiving devoted to the Lord. These are the people that founded our civilization. Cotton Mather, the uh, son-in-law of the great John Cotton, and of course, uh, one of the Mathers, one of the great uh, American Puritan families. Cotton Mather wrote a book, The Great Works of Christ in America. Magnalia Christi Americana, The Great Works of Christ in America. And my friends, there have been many great works of Christ in America. And even when the American Puritans fell away, from glorifying God and thanking God and they became obsessed with their own businesses and their own farms and their their own families and all of these earthly things as God prospered them they became consumed with earthly wealth and prosperity and wickedness prevailed and the churches were empty in the early 1700s God sent another great work of Christ in America the great awakening through the preaching of godly, reformed, Calvinistic 
preachers who went forth and did not flatter the people. They didn't say, God bless America. They called America to repentance and they were anointed with the Spirit and the fear of God and people trembled in the pews and in the outdoor open air services. They trembled and they fell down on their face, tears in their eyes, and repented and gave glory to God and thanked and praised the God of grace. Moses warned the Israelites that when you come into the land, be careful when God has done all these mighty works for you and He's given you this land. Be careful. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 10, So it shall be when the Lord your God brings you into the land of which He swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you large and beautiful cities which you did not build, houses full of all good things which you did not fill, hewn out wells which you did not dig, vineyards and olive trees which you did not plant, when you have eaten and are full, then beware lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. The Lord who brought those ancestors, societally speaking, ancestors who founded this nation, this country, this, well, really the civilization in the early 1600s. They fled persecution on the continent, persecution in Britain. They came to this land and by God's grace, they established a society and many blessings. And it's not the case that they walked into a, a great and prosperous uh, you know, situation. It's not like Israel when they inherited the Canaanite cities and fields and wells and all of that. But their future generations, including ourselves, we've inherited blessings that we didn't work for. We've inherited privileges and advantages Houses full of good things which we did not fill. Hewn out wells. The cities, the society, the structure of law and order. We have these freedoms. We have these blessings. We have these privileges which we ourselves did not establish. And it tempts us to forget the God who gave them to us. And that's what we've done. The ungrateful states of America. If you were to look at the influence of the early Calvinistic Christians in this country, even more broadly, the early evangelicals and the Great Awakening, you would see that so many, uh, even all of the Ivy League schools were founded by Christians. You would see that so many of the prestigious universities, state universities, private universities, were founded by Christians for the glory of God and of Jesus Christ. And we've inherited these things and we have not glorified Him as God nor were thankful. We've omitted glory, worship, and praise and thanks. And my friends, notice how omission leads to commission. You omit the worship and praise and thankfulness toward God, and what happens? Read the rest of Romans 1. The omission of not glorifying and not thanking has led to all the commission, the perversion, the immorality, the injustice, and the chaos. The problem here is not in these sins of commission. The problem is that these sins of commission have filled a vacuum created by the omission of worship. And my friends, the omission of worship is the root problem. 
There was a recent theology conference where all the speakers were asked the question of what's the most relevant, uh, what's the most relevant issue in our day? What's the, what is it that the church should be most concerned about in terms of our surrounding culture? And many of these ministers in lockstep said that it's critical race theory. You know, they're getting into these political ideologies that are spreading throughout our culture. But one minister said, no, the most relevant issue in the world today is worship. And he was right. It's the omission of worship that is the root cause of all of these problems. It's the root. It's the, worship is the root of reformation. Worship is the root of apostasy and disobedience and cultural wickedness. And so, my friends, we need to get beyond second table conservatism. We need to get beyond the cackling critiques, people making fun of the wickedness in our day. Okay, it's entertaining. You know, the Babylon Bee, Tucker Carlson, all these things. Okay, they're making fun of, of the utter stupidity of people that are in rebellion against God. But here's the thing. The reason that they have engaged in this foolishness, according to Romans 1, the thing that paved the way for the foolishness was the failure to worship and thank God as He deserves. We need to get past this second table conservatism with its ethical band-aids. Wow, congratulations. You've said that, that, that teachers can't teach homosexuality to kindergartners. I mean, that's good. We don't want them doing that. But really, that's as far as we go. My friends, th- that, is, that, that is just fooling around with the leaves on the tree. We need to cut to the root of the problem. The root of the problem is that those schools are devoid of the knowledge and glory of God. Those schools are not teaching people who God is, what He requires in His law, what He has done for us in providence and in Christ, such that the children can be raised up to honor and worship and glorify and enjoy God forever and give thanks to His holy name. Stop putting a band-aid on the problems of our society. Oh, you can't teach kindergartners... uh, homosexuality, but you can teach them to be secular humanists. Give me a break. Give me a physical break. This generic deity of second table conservatism, God bless America, but there is no fear of God before their eyes as they laugh and as they make fun of the foolishness of the world. They confess themselves to be part of the world for what is more foolish than to play around with the symptoms and not treat the disease. They're part of the problem. My friends, we need to look in the mirror. You and I need to look in the mirror and realize we've suppressed a thousand times more truth than the people in Romans chapter 1. We've failed to be the kingdom of priests that God has appointed us to be as His church. How dare we sit back and, and joke around and mock How dare I do that? How dare you do that? How dare we do that when it is our failure as the kingdom of priests who have been brought out of darkness into light to declare His praises, to be the priests that bring the knowledge of God to our culture, that that just through osmosis, the fear of God, they see it in us. 1 Corinthians 14, they come into our worship service and they fall down on their face before God, knowing that God is among us. That's not happening. 
Psalm 29. God's voice in His providence is all over creation, but in His temple, all cry out, glory. That's not happening. Hebrews chapter 12, we're to be the heavenly Jerusalem. People are to come into our worship and sense that we truly believe that we are in communion and fellowship with Christ at the throne in heaven. And that He is a consuming fire. Why? Why are they? To, because they see we have grace to worship with reverence and godly fear. My friends in this nation, we as Christians do not have the fear of God as we ought. Why has God not healed our land? Not because of the people that Tucker Carlson is making fun of. It's because of you and me. You and I that have received so much and responded with so little. We have not humbled ourselves and prayed and sought the face of God, repented of our wicked ways. We have not done these things in the visible church in America. And we confess as individuals here today, we haven't done these things anywhere near what we know we ought to be doing. My friends, the solution is a root and branch repentance and reformation. The solution is Nineveh. Not sitting around joking about the foolishness of of the Titanic as it sinks. Okay, we need Nineveh. We need repentance. We need the fear of God. We need what Revelation 16.9 says. It says people didn't do it. They did not repent and glorify God. That's what we need. To repent and glorify God. How do we do that? Again, very briefly, how do we do that? Let me just leave you with this. Revelation 14, verses 6-8. through Revelation 14, verses 6-8. through This is just before God... Christ prophesies the fall of Babylon. The fall of Babylon. What brings Babylon to fall? Verse 6, Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to Him. For the hour of His judgment has come and worship Him who made heaven and earth, the sea and springs of water. And another angel followed saying, Babylon has fallen. How does Babylon fall? Forget about your eschatology. We'll talk about it some other time. But we're all wanting Babylon to fall. How does it fall? It falls through the Gospel being preached clearly and powerfully throughout every nation under heaven and including a call to fear God and give glory to the maker of heaven and earth. Salvation and worship. This is the twofold foundation and root of the true religion, of the glory of God, of the advancement of His kingdom. This is the root of reformation and advancement of the church of Jesus Christ. Salvation and worship. These are the two pillars of the Reformation according to Calvin. Salvation and worship. So we're not going to solve this problem with people that don't even understand salvation and who have no fear of God in worship. We're only going to solve this problem through the Gospel and through worship. Well, we'll leave it there. We'll come back to Romans 1 next time. Let's pray. Gracious God, We pray that You would consecrate us even now as a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. 
that we would not look to others to fight the battles of the Lord, but that we ourselves would put on the whole armor of God. For as Jesus our Lord has said, we are the salt of the earth, we are the light of the world, they will see our good works and praise our Father who is in heaven, and we desire them to glorify and praise you and thank you. So please encourage us and raise us up as your ambassadors, as your witnesses, that the knowledge of the Lord and the fear of God may be throughout this world. In Jesus' name, amen.